The nail in the coffin! Somber Thursday night as we record episode number 49 of The Nail. Trev, great postseason run for the Indians, comes up one win short. And the last time we were on, you said you were going to be absolutely crushed if the Tribe didn't win at all. So, um, you know, not exactly the easiest letdown there. Uh, last night, uh, how are you feeling today? Um, Not, probably not as crushed as I expected to be but still sort of there's just so much from the game yesterday specifically. That's like if this one little thing went differently and you know, the, the what if game um, basically spent all day analyzing all these different scenarios that could have, could have changed the result. Um, but it is what it is. I mean, it's hard to not be, you know, I don't like throwing out the generic platitudes like everyone else. Oh, I'm so proud of this team and the effort and blah, blah, blah. But I kind of am, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's a brutal, brutal thing to go through. Um, just, I don't know the whole game yesterday. You, you, you gotta be, you know, proud of how they kept fighting back and, that Rajay Davis home run is going to go down. is probably the most exciting thing we've ever seen in a loss. That's going to go down. I think in, in baseball history as one of the all time great forgotten moments. Yep. Because I mean, it ultimately didn't lead to a win, but uh, in the moment there, I, I gotta be honest, like, you know, you and I texted in the morning yesterday before the game. And I never had a good feeling about that at all going in. And it just, there were so many parallels for me. And I know a lot of other people have kind of been drawing this analogy over the last couple of days, but just to the 2015 Cavs, both in terms of how they got to the, the final round and then the opponent they were facing and um, just the way the series was playing out. And we all know how the, the Cavs ended the 2015 season. And especially once that game last night got going, it, and it just nothing was happening there to make me think any differently. And it, I mean, it, literally the first batter of the game home run and the, the Indians, I mean, like you said, to their credit, I mean, they just kept fighting back, but Chicago was not going to let them uh, get back into it up until um, the, the Rajay Davis home run there in the eighth. But um, man, it uh, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I think it's probably, too soon to be trying to put that game in any sort of a historical perspective. But I mean, given the stakes and the teams that were involved and just the way that game unfolded, I mean, that that's an all timer. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's, there's something cool about, you know, people are saying today it could be the best world series game, you know, maybe of all time, if not in a very long time. And obviously a lot of people are prisoner of the moment, but with how the game went, it's, it's probably hard to argue. Um, it, it sort of felt like 
I don't know about you, but early on in that game, obviously we we'd score a run and it was like, okay, if we can blank them this next inning, we'll be right back in it. And then they'd put up another run or two. And then we'd, you know, have a couple innings where we didn't do anything. And it just sort of followed this pattern where it felt like nothing was going to go right. And then they went to Chapman and it's like, well, shit, this guy's coming in. So this game is over. And see, I felt the exact opposite. That that decision from I I think just in general, that's the feeling you get from Chapman. I do think in the back of our heads, the the fact that he had thrown him the day before in a completely I mean, that that was a screw up by Madden. Let's be honest. Absolutely. He he, he got bailed out, but that was a bad move by him. And it almost and probably should have been uh, in the ass. Um, but he got bailed out by, uh, the top of his lineup in the 10th inning. But yeah, I don't think it was necessarily surprising that it happened, but it's not nor- the name Chapman. Usually, you know, you're thinking, okay, this guy's going to come in and mow a few guys down and this game's over. Um, but the fact that we were able to get to him was really exciting. We finally clawed back into it. I don't know about you, but I went through the roof when Raja hit that homer and I just, like like we said, one of these one of these moments you'll remember. That well, yeah, that moment you'll tell people about it for a long time, but it'll be like yeah, but we still lost the game. Yeah, I'll tell you what I was gonna say before was um, for that being kind of an all timer and having the Indians involved with it. I did not, and I'm gonna be the first to admit I, I did not have the intensity to match um, watching that game. I think it was just because I came in with such low expectations, and it just. It, it felt like a, a death march for so much of that game. And um, that that was the one moment. It was, it was kind of funny that, uh, you know, uh, my wife, um, not really a big baseball fan, and, and she wasn't too into it, but she finally came downstairs in the later innings. And um, she was going to go to bed after like the seventh. And I said, stick around and watch the Indians bat one more time. They've, they've put up a couple runs since you've come down here. I'm looking for any sort of a, a superstitious uh, edge that I could possibly find. And uh, w- when Rajay turned on that ball, um, I-, I may or may not have uh, done a, a, a full scale tackle uh, on the couch. <laughs> you're, you're here for the duration now, but uh, um, that was, uh, you know, just what you were talking about with, with Chapman and a couple of things. Number one, like you said, he had thrown so many pitches the night before in a completely unnecessary situation. The other thing, I just felt like the Indians had seen him so many times in the series. They were due to finally get to him because you keep getting at bats on a guy. Yeah, you could tell they were You're going to start getting familiar with you what he does. Yeah, and, and it just it felt like it, at some point or another, they were going to finally square him up a little bit. And truth be told, I think that's the same thing that happened to Corey Kluber. You know, we, we came into this thing saying, oh, well, you know, he could he can win game one, four and seven. And you just need one guy to win any of the other, th- you know, four games and you win the World Series. And I mean, in retrospect, I, I really Miller think. Too. Yeah, yeah I, I think it was uh, it was too much to ask. I, I think that was a unreasonable uh, expectation, especially against that Cubs lineup. Um, Cause I mean, you saw it. I mean, the first game he struck out eight guys in the first three innings and second game, pretty good, not quite to the same level. And by last night, uh, no strikeouts. I mean, that was the first time in like 140 something starts in his career. He didn't strike anybody out. And you know, his control was not quite there. 
And I mean, he was laboring and it was, it was rough. And, and there's a reason nobody's won uh, three starts in a world series in, in almost 50 years. So um, I, I think it was uh, at, at the same time, I mean, it, it's unreasonable of an expectation as that might've been. I don't think the Indians had any choice that, that they oh. had to ride him to the ground and pray for the best. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you kind of, we talked about it during the Toronto series. Like if it got to that, you were going to have to do it then. Luckily it didn't, but um, I mean, he pitched so he pitched incredible the rest of like every other start in the playoffs. So yeah, you had to get him out there and you didn't really expect him to go the distance, but you were hoping he'd give you, you know, four or five innings. Then you could go to the bullpen and the bullpen had also been dominant all playoff. And unfortunately, like we just said, same thing that the Indians did with Chapman, um, the Cubs had seen all our guys a lot too. And at that point, you know, it just sort of, sort of caught up to them. Unfortunately with the injuries that we had with Carrasco and Salazar, um, obviously Salazar was in the bullpen, but I think, I don't think Tito had much, he just didn't have confidence in him. And I don't mean that in like a negative way. It's just the guy hadn't pitched much in a long time. Um, but yeah, it was just sort of, you had to go with, you know, the guy that got you there regardless of what the uh, the rest situation was and whatnot. What happened with Kluver, I felt like, was kind of indicative of everything that went south in the last, especially over the last three games of this series. I mean, the Indians had kind of developed a formula to, to win these games. It was get the lead early, um, smart base running, solid defense, don't give the other team any extra outs, lights out bullpen, and... Take advantage on the bases whenever you can, and and get the the timely hit. And I, I they really had a hard time stringing hits together uh, until last night. I felt like they actually had a few instances where they were able to finally, um, you know, get two or three guys to to you know hit the ball well in an inning. But um, some of these games here, it just it was really tough for them. But you know, the Cubs outran them on the bases. The Cubs did way more. Um, they, they were way more effective in stealing bases. They were way more effective in taking the extra base and, you know, tagging up in situations where you're not necessarily expecting it as the opposing team. And that was something the Indians um, beat their opponents in and, and kind of outdid it, outdid the opposition in all year and especially in the playoffs and, and to kind of get the tables turned, that was rough. And um, over the last couple of games, I mean, game six, that first inning, the, the defense was just an absolute backbreaker. Uh, you know, you could have survived, uh, you know, uh, Tomlin giving up just the, uh, the, the one home run there. Oh, but um, I'd already, I'd already moved on. I, I know, but <laughs> that, already, that like, ball dropping between uh, Tyler Naquin and, and, and Lonnie in right center. I mean, that, that just can't happen at this stage. And, you know, it, um, it's it's a bad time for uh, you know the the Cinderella carriage to turn into a pumpkin, I guess. Yeah, no kidding. And then yesterday, the one I, I'm not going to question any of the pitching moves that Tito made yesterday, um, but with the situation that game was in, I don't know if if there is any excuse to be made. Obviously, he was kind of in desperation mode because of the way that the game went, but you got a hard time explaining to me how you put yourself in a position to have no one on your bench with two outs and Michael Martinez up the bat. 
with your series on the your entire season yeah. on the line. Yeah, your entire series is on Michael Martinez because you used up everyone. Um, and that, and that, I mean, that's kind of a small gripe. Who knows how much he could have done about that? You know, the reason he, he brought him in, I think, is back at that point. The the reason he brought him in in that situation was what really kind of made that move a head scratcher. And and really, I mean, we're not going to kill Tito here. I mean, he was no, on no. the the run of a lifetime managing through the first two rounds of the postseason and then really through the first half of the World Series. And I, I would even say into game six. I mean, the things that went wrong in games five and six, I don't really think were on him at all. And, you know, he had a couple of head scratchers last night, but just trying to get, um, you know, slightly better odds and uh, defensively there uh, in that situation of the game, yeah, and putting yourself in that vulnerable of a position, um, when you're coming up to bat the next inning, that's um, that's rough. You know, the other thing that he kind of got burned on is he's had this he had this tendency throughout the playoffs. It seemed like where when it seemed like a pitcher was done, he would let them, or or at the point when he was ready to probably pull the plug on him, he would let him go out and start the next inning, and then as soon as you get the first sign of trouble, you pull him, and. That really backfired last night. I, I didn't think Kluber should have lasted through the fourth inning. Um, and, and he ended up giving up an extra run, I think, in the fourth. And then to bring him back out for the fifth was just um, absolutely unconscionable. And, you know, they uh, Cubs got a leadoff home run there. And um, I think he might have left Andrew Miller in uh, for, for a bat or two long. Uh, same deal. And, um Mm-hmm. And and whereas in the past, leaving those guys in one at bat too long, it's okay. You walk somebody or you give up a, a leadoff single. I mean, the Cubs are knocking balls out of the park and putting runs on the board. And when you're already trying to fight from behind, that that's just a backbreaker. Yeah, they they you can't you're gonna have a hard time winning a game if you're always trying to come back the entire game, like. You're never they didn't get any timely stops or holds at any point yesterday. So it was like, yeah, they were behind from the first at bat and never really felt like they were going to be able to get back in it. I mean, even they were tied at one one. I mean, it wasn't like they were getting blown out, but uh, I think it was at five one at one point, Mm -hmm. five to one and then six to three. Yeah. So and and. I don't know. It's depressing to talk about. So it is. It's, it's hard for me to overanalyze it because so much of it right now is still just like emotion. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. But at the same time, I, I'm, I think I'm coming to grips with it. I said it at the beginning and I'm sort of going back on what I said. Um, this team, they won't say it, but they overachieved and gave us three insanely fun weeks of baseball um that just came up a little bit short so i'm not going to crush any of the decisions too much i'm not even going to crush the players even though there's a couple of them who uh definitely you know didn't show up when the lights were on mike napoli um but (laughs) party's over yeah the party ended um (laughs) but it's interesting i don't know we'll see um it's hard to look at it and think that you know they really need to change a whole lot considering how this series went and the injuries that presumably will be gone by next year. Hopefully I'm glad you mentioned that because I disagree. 
Um, okay. All right. Let's hear it. Well, here's the thing. I don't think you need to blow up the roster. I'm not saying anything drastic needs to happen, but you know, we, we look at the parallels between what happened in this postseason run and what happened with the Cavs in 2015. And, you know, you look back at the Cavs and I think there was kind of a, a, a tendency to say going into last year, well, you know, you get Kyrie back and you get Kevin Love back, you're going to be fine. And, and you know, you, you could have beaten the Warriors the year before. Um, they they made moves that made their team better uh, for the, the going into the 2016 uh, playoffs. And um, I think they were incremental, but they mattered. They made a difference. They made the Cavs more versatile. And I, I feel like there are some complementary pieces that the Indians need. The Indians outfield needs work. I, I, I just look at that outfield. I mean, you, you couldn't trust Tyler Naquin. Um, you, uh, I, I don't feel um, abundantly confident about Lonnie Chisenhall. Um, Michael Brantley, you're, you're counting on next year. I mean, we've already heard some whispers that he might not even be ready for the start of 2017. And if that's the case, you got to start wondering at what point is he ever coming back? It, and it, when he does, it, I mean, how fair is it to expect him to be everything that he was before uh, the shoulder injury? Um, cause I mean, he, he'll have been on the shelf for over a year at that point. And uh, so that's creating a real hole in left field. So, um, I, I think you need, especially in center, you need a, a more reliable, uh, defensive option out there. And I think another, uh, an, an upgrade at that utility position. Um, I, I don't want yeah. another season coming down to Michael Martinez at the plate. I agree. I so, don't, and, that's, and that's, really, those are small things, though. Those are yeah, you know, and, and that's why I'm saying it's it's yeah. not blowing up the roster. But you know, again, it, beyond that, though, like Mike Napoli, he's one of the few guys that's a free agent on this on this roster. Um, I I think in mid July or, or mid August, you'd be happy to write a check to him for fifteen million dollars a year over the next two years. He batted about I think one forty from September 1st through the end of the world series. And I mean, he was persona non grata for the most part, batting cleanup in the world series. How, and I, and I mean, he's not getting any younger. How comfortable are you now at this point counting on him for next year to, you know, hit 30 plus home runs. Yeah. He might be, he might be turning into the, the, uh, the non everyday player guy, not, not necessarily saying you don't want him, but I don't know if you can have him in the lineup every single day. Yeah. Um, obviously he, he was lights out through, I mean, he was crushing the ball for a majority of the season, so it could just be that he wore out or something. I don't know, but yeah, there was definitely a big drop off near the end of the season and it, you know, it wasn't never more apparent than yesterday when he just looked lost at the plate. Yeah, and it sucks because, I mean, he did have a, a really productive season, yeah, really and I think we got way more out of him during the course no of the question. year. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I mean, but, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it's, um, you, <laughs> you you can't cut corners when you get this close. I, I just, I, I, I will be extremely interested to see how the Indians front office approaches it, because I really do think they've got a great core. I mean, You've got. I know Napoli is a free agent. Is uh, is Rajay uh, a free agent after this year? 
Rajay is a free agent. Um, I believe Coco is a free agent, but there's an option on him. Okay. Um, one other one too, but I'm I'm drawing a blank. So um, I mean, it's yes, it's ancillary this. pieces for the most part. There, I mean, Napoli, I wouldn't necessarily consider ancillary, but I mean, you, I don't think he was ever signed with the intention of being here for five years. So the the, the guys that you are looking at long term, like um, we found out today that Carlos Santana, they're going to pick up his option, so he's in for next year. So if you're looking at it right now, I think the only guys whose contracts expire after 2017 are going to be Brian Shaw and, and Santana. Um, and really, like, half of this core group, they've got locked up through 2020. So, I mean, the window's open, and it's going to be really interesting to me to see what they do But those windows don't stay open for long. And no, they don't. We learned, we learned that in the 90s. you got to strike while the iron's hot. Um, so, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I don't want them to just stand pat. I think they have, a obviously, they have a really good core in place, and, and their payroll's pretty low. Um, you got to hope that the uh, that the increased revenue they enjoyed from this World Series um, comes back in the form of, uh, you know, maybe a couple free agent signings. Yeah. I got to tell you, you know, just the one thing I will say, um, and this kind of goes back to the beginning of the conversation when, when we were just talking about, you know, how we were feeling after last night. And I, you know, I think we kind of in agreement. I mean, it was a great run and, and they did get – probably further than was reasonably expected. That said, I mean, I felt okay today, bummed out. Had the Cavs not won game seven back in June, if they, if they don't win game seven and then that we get that game seven with the Indians last night, I can promise you we are not doing this podcast right now because I'd probably be catatonic on my couch in the basement for another three days. Yeah, I struggle. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I struggled last night. I laid in bed for, I, I was exhausted emotionally, but I laid in bed and I probably didn't fall asleep till two thirty, three o'clock. Yeah, I was um, in the same boat. I was just sitting there running back everything in my head, like how this happened. That home run was awesome. How did we not uh, build on that momentum? What's with this fucking ten minute rain delay <laughs> in the middle of the, you know, right at the end of the game? That could not um, have come at a worse time. Oh, uh, and a couple, I saw a couple Cubs guys even said as much Right for them. You know, it came at the perfect time for them. Um, the Cubs were a little shell-shocked, and they got this this 15-minute respite to go and, you know, get their get their mind straightened back out, uh, which and I, I'm not sure I totally believe in the whole momentum thing, but I do believe that you can rattle a team. Um, and I think the Cubs obviously were in that situation and getting the fact, uh, getting the uh, opportunity to, you know, get off the field. Everyone gets to clear their heads and, you know, get on the same page again and sort of reset um, definitely helped them a lot. I think. Oh, not to mention I, as much as it helped them, I think it hurt Brian Shaw. I mean, he looked fine yeah. in the ninth and yeah. that's all. I mean, you had to sit for the bottom of the ninth and then you got to sit another 25 minutes for the top of the 10th. And I, I understand why they left him in there. I mean, at that point, you don't know how much longer that game's going. And he's far and away your best option remaining in the bullpen. And he didn't really throw that many pitches in the ninth. But um, that's tough to to come right back into into the crosshairs there, facing really the toughest part of the Cubs lineup. Um, And and to be honest, like the Indians had their chance in the bottom of the ninth. You know, they they had their, their heart of the order up and and didn't get it done against Chapman. Um, all the damage on Chapman was done in the eighth. 
Did you think that Kipnis hit was? Yes, wrong? I was just gonna tell you that I. I, I honestly, it it wasn't even close. Like I know, I know, I I jumped up. I thought it was. Oh my goodness. I I'm gonna you know I'm gonna take the L here and and admit it now. Um, I literally jumped off the couch and screamed, "Oh my god, he hit a home run to win it!" Like, and then all of a sudden I see it like harmlessly falling under yeah, got, the the, got, the seats in the right field line. <laughs> Right. It was, yeah, it was probably a good 30 feet short. Yeah. And yeah. 20, it, it wasn't 20, even close to fair foul. and it wasn't even close to having the distance, but off but his bat. Yeah. I, I, it just looked like, yeah, it looked like he got a hold of it. Oh, that, um, bummer. Yeah. Mm. Bummer. But, so, yeah, I, I'm with you, though. I, uh, last night after that game was over, I, you know, <laughs> I was making a, a PBJ for my daughter as I was watching the, the trophy presentation, just trying to, you know, let myself down a little bit and um yeah i went up to bed and just uh scrolling through twitter and um staying off facebook and i'm i'm kind of glad i did that to be honest with you because i i did go on today and uh th- that was um a bit of an adventure i i, I know there was uh some people uh pretty pissed off with the uh the, the um the c- composition of the fans in the stadium yeah, last night or I'm, or I'm part of that, that okay game. so h- how did you feel about all that all right so here's what i'm gonna say i have no problem with anyone who had tickets and sold them to the highest bidder i'm i'm not a wealthy person by any stretch of the imagination if i had something in my possession that i could turn into two thousand four thousand dollars if i went to my wife and said sorry dear we can't get a new kitchen but we're going to make sure we have home field advantage for this baseball game. <laughs> I'd probably be making this call from my parents' house right now. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to knock anyone at all for selling their tickets because they can make a lot of money off of them. That being said, there's no, it's another screw up by the Indians ticket office for allowing anybody who's got season tickets to buy eight tickets to a game. So to those who aren't aware, if you had season, if you were a season ticket holder for the Indians, you had the opportunity to buy uh, pre-sale tickets to every game in the playoffs before any of the insiders or the public sale tickets. And you could buy up to eight, regardless of how many season tickets you had. So you had a bunch of people who had two season tickets, went out and bought two of them, sold the other six because they could make a ton of money off of them. Mm. And a vast majority of those six were going to Cubs fans because let's be honest, Cubs fans have more disposable income. Sure do. It's just the way it is. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a, a positive or a negative on any side. It's just, yes, people in Chicago, there's a, there's a lot more Cubs fans than there are Indians fans. So when you have, you know, a Metro area, five times the size of Cleveland, you're going to have more people. And naturally, you're going to have more people with a lot of money. Um, so I'm not going to knock anyone for selling them. I do think that the Indians desperately need to restructure the way they do postseason tickets um, because all those tickets were getting gobbled up by season ticket holders who weren't using most of them. Your brokers who buy a lot of season tickets um, and then parlay those into postseason tickets that are not going to any fans in general. They're just being sold. Um, and it, it, and truthfully, the way they did it just priced so many people out of going to the game. 
Um, I think that the the face value of those tickets, I think, is, and I might be wrong on this. I'm pretty sure the face value of the tickets is set by Major League Baseball. Um, yeah, I honestly I don't know. I have no idea how they set the face value. I know they have so many different um, tiers of tickets, mm-hmm. um, and they went up gradually throughout the series. Um, I know the standing room ones were like sixty five bucks for the Toronto series, and then a hundred bucks for the World Series, and that's that's okay. That I, I honestly I don't have a major gripe with the face value of the tickets. It was definitely pretty high. Like I thought it was lofty when I looked at it, um, but I didn't have a huge issue with that. The problem was no one was able to get them. Nobody was able to buy them at face value um, unless you had a season ticket package. Otherwise, you were stuck paying you know, 250 to 300% premium for them. The cheapest ticket that I saw yesterday to get into the game was 650 for a standing room ticket. That's a $100 ticket for 600 bucks. Yeah. I mean, sub up fees and all that crap. Like, truthfully, they, I don't think they should allow people to buy the tickets to sell them online. Um, but with the StubHub uh, agreement they have with Major League Baseball, that's not going away anytime soon. No, the, uh, the, the biggest thing here, and I think it, it just was a really bad set of circumstances for the, the Indians in, in terms of, you know, you. The, the Cubs, like you said, I mean, you got a lot more fans and you've got a lot more fans with a lot of disposable income. And I mean, just given the, the desperation in their fan base, not having any World Series games in basically anybody's lifetime. And, uh, you know, you got even well beyond that in terms of winning the World Series. I mean, these are people that have probably been saving money to go see the Cubs in the World Series for years. And it got to the point where I'm pretty sure I heard last week it was cheaper for Cubs fans in Chicago to buy a ticket in Cleveland, travel here, stay here in a hotel mm-hmm. and go to the game in Cleveland than it would be just to get a ticket into Wrigley. So yep. you, uh, you, you had that happening. Um, and you know, the other thing I, I think a lot of people forget about is you had two really deep postseason runs for the Cavs in the last two years. And you had Stipe here in the UFC back in, um, what was that just last month or, or September, I should say. And um, I mean, hell, even the monsters sold out a game back in June. So there have been a lot of like big ticket events here. And I just, for, for the size of the city, I, I don't know how much you can really, how many times people can keep shelling out money for the big ticket events and you get the most rabid fan base that also happens to be within driving distance. I think to a certain degree, the same thing could have happened to Detroit or it could have happened to the twins or um, another team in this region. Had they been the American league team in the world series. So um, yeah, they were saying that tickets for this were more expensive than eight out of the previous 10 super bowls, which is just absolutely insane. So that's that's a once in a lifetime set of circumstances. You're never going to see that again, um, whether it's here or anywhere else. So uh, I, I just, I mean, yeah, it was kind of a, a bummer to see that many um, Cubs fans in, in Cleveland when um, that was the first game seven of any kind at either one of the gateway stadiums since that complex opened in 94. And it, you had two chances to, uh, clinch a World Series championship here in, in game six and seven, but um, I mean, it is what it is. Yep. 
Yep, absolutely. I mean, it was it was frustrating every time something good happened for the Cubs, and it, it sounded like Wrigley. Um, I'm sure some of that was Fox, you know, pumping up the sound a little bit to make, you know, add a little uh, drama, uh, drama to the situation. Oh, but, we're going to talk more about Fox next, so go on. <laughs> continue your point. And I don't – honestly, I don't really have a big problem with that. Um, of of Fox is, uh, Fox's um, – transgressions in the world series that's very near the bottom <laughs> um, i'm not even sure they did that i mean there was a huge contingent i mean there were people that were there that said it was 50 50 yeah so all right i mean it, it, i just think in general they may, probably made it sound louder than it wasn't for both i think in general they when a big play happens they pump up the crowd more than you know it might actually be um be, because it was 50 50 i wouldn't expect it to get crazy loud for any big play because only half the crowd's going to cheer. Um, and it sure sounded like it was a home game for both teams. Any, anytime something big happened, but anyways, um, what do you got about Fox? Go for it. You know, we talked about this going into the series and let me be a hundred percent clear. You and I begged on TBS a lot through the American league playoffs. And overall, I didn't have nearly as much of a problem with Fox as I did with TBS. Um, I thought John Smoltz was fantastic as a a color commentator. I thought the two in-game reporters that they had working on the field both did a tremendous job. I didn't really watch any of the pregame or postgame, so I don't really have any sort of an opinion on that. Um, But the the thing that kind of grated on me a little bit, um, we, we, we talked about before the series started that, um, the Cubs were kind of this America's team and um, the Indians were going to be kind of the other guy and the writing on the wall for how this broadcast was going to go really uh, became apparent to me when I think it was last Friday. So the day of uh, game three, when Wrigley was going to, you know, the Cubs are going to have their first world series game at Wrigley. Um, Joe Buck wrote an essay. I think it was on either the Fox sports website or, or sports illustrated. Um, already declaring before the games there even started that calling a Cubs World Series game at Wrigley Field was going to be the biggest moment of his career. And this is a guy that's done the World Series almost every single year since 96. He's done multiple Super Bowls. He's done the U.S. Open. So, I mean, this guy's got as good of a resume in the last 20 years as anybody, and he's already calling this the biggest moment. So it, it became really clear to me that um, he had an emotional investment with the cut with telling the Cubs story that he did not have with the Indians. I mean, he was a typical national announcer uh, when it came to the Indians and that's fine. But, um, and he tried to put this half-assed disclaimer in there saying like, Oh, I know Indians fans think I hate their team. And, and as if that was going to just like, be able to you know cover everything and, and make everything else he said they're okay and and that frustrated me because it's like no I don't think you hate our team I just you, you clearly are way more interested in one than the other and nobody wants to feel like their team is just the other guy um you know the the nameless uh, group in the other dugout and it just became really clear to me that it is the, the each game unfolded you know in the early games when the Indians were winning you heard a lot of like, okay, well, what do the Cubs need to do to get back into this now? 
how, how do the Cubs solve Corey Kluber? How do the Cubs, you know, put one across on, on Josh Tomlin? And I was okay with that. And, you know, cause you know, I had some family that was kind of griping about that. And I said, oh, that that's not uncommon. You're, you know, when, when a team's losing, um, you're going to try to explain what, what do they need to do to get back into it? Cause you're trying to keep the, the audience engaged. You want to feel like both teams still have a chance to win. But then like I'm listening last night and the Cubs went up five to one. And all of a sudden then it's, well, what do the Cubs need to do to nail this down? When's John Lester coming in? And it's like, they spent two and a half fucking innings talking about John Lester before he even came into the game. It was like the game very well could have been decided well before he even got in and, and John Lester became the biggest story because he was going to be the guy to, to, to ride in on the white horse and, and secure the, the world series for the Cubs. And that, that whole thing just kind of frustrated me. It's like, no, I, I don't think you hate the Indians, but I mean, let's, let's drop yeah, all the pretenses like, here. Like Tom Hamilton, he probably doesn't hate the Cubs, but if you listen to his broadcast, you know who he's rooting for. Well, Tom Hamilton collects a paycheck from the Indians. And if you listen to the Cubs broadcast, Joe Buck sounded like he collected a paycheck from the Cubs. And you know, the most shocking thing to me was there. I heard on the radio today, there were people saying that there were Cubs fans that thought that Joe Buck hated their team. Really? Like, I, I, I mean, coming that's into that series, I could see how you might have that trepidation considering he's a St. Louis guy and still lives in St. Louis and broadcast the, the Cardinals games for years and all that. And that's their big rival. But like listening to that broadcast I, and listening to all of these games, once you got about four or five games into the series, I, you have to be drunk to, to still think that. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty apparent and truthfully, I don't, I don't really care. Cause when I'm watching the game, I don't really, they don't, they don't impact me that much. And it didn't really I'd bother rather, me that I'd much. Rather, I'd rather they be better at it, but it didn't, it didn't but. bother me until I got to last night and, and I, I just kind of accepted our fate with it through the first six games, but it, it felt really over the top last night. And I don't know if it was just cause it was finally the first time the, the Cubs had a claim, a chance to clinch. But um, like you said, I mean, or, or I think the point you were about to get to there was it, it didn't really, impact the game i mean maybe it affects the way you are presented the game but the actual on-field results what they're saying in a broadcast booth doesn't matter yeah far more um frustrating to me was the apparent bias behind the plate in several of those games perfect um, segue that's where i wanted to go yeah. next <laughs> yeah as bad as as the joe buck um as bad as joe buck was at being you know impartial in his job um, it didn't have an impact on the game. Uh, the guys in the black shirts, um, I don't know if they were purposefully um, trending one way or the other, but it was about the most inconsistent and worst um, worst umpiring job I've seen calling balls and strikes in a long time. And Game three was the most egregious example. The worst of that. I've, that's by far the worst I've ever seen, and we got lucky. We ended up winning that game somehow. Um, with, with how their strike, with the strike zone, the Cubs were given, it is incredible that we shut them out that game. Yeah. I, I will say last night's game, I think the Indians got jobbed on a few balls and strikes calls. One of them, um, definitely opened the door to a Cubs rally. That said, I think last night the Cubs also had, had a couple, uh, a bad, um, pitches, uh, bad calls on pitches that, 
one of them definitely opened up an inning to get the Indians a couple of runs. So, do you, do you follow this Indians ump Twitter account? The 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 one with the kept uh, shows all the pitches. I I don't, but it got tweeted into my timeline enough times. I saw most of the relevant examples. It's pretty impressive. So if you, if for folks that aren't familiar, it shows you not just where it is in the zone. It's it doesn't it's not so much on the zone, but it's based more about how pitches are typically called. And it, it basically tells you here's how it was, here's where it was on, on a picture, and it says it was this many inches from the edge um, of the strike zone. It's called a ball or strike, whichever it is. It's only called this X percent of the time. Um, so for, there was one actually yesterday, Chris Bryant got a walk that turned out to be a two run inning, um, when he should have been out actually twice at that point. <laughs> um, his ball two was literally right in the heart of the strike zone. And according to this, this Twitter account, I, I'm not sure where they pull their data from, but according to this Twitter account, um, it's only called a ball, um, less than 2% of the time. And then the ball four that he got walked on was only called a ball 10% of the time. So it was like these ones that in theory are never called balls um, for whatever reason. Andrew Miller was throwing them yesterday and they were, and they came back to bite them. Um, there was a couple, there was one against Santana um, that people looked at a lot and said that should have been a strike. According to that Twitter account, it was called a strike 40% of the time. So that's still pretty close to a toss-up. That's still almost a 50-50 one, but yeah. I can see why you might be a little frustrated with it. But um, in general, it seemed like a lot more of those went the Cubs' way than the Indians' way. Um, game three was, like you said, the most egregious. I think it ended up being um, 19 of them total in the entire game were called incorrectly. Either a ball should have been a strike or a strike should have been a ball. 16 of them benefited the Cubs. Ouch. Yeah. So I would guess that the the ratio of of missed calls on balls and strikes for um in terms of which team it benefited, I, I would just without seeing the numbers off the top of my head, I would guess that it was a little bit more even last night in um it, it a lot of that just kind of depends on what what the situation is when the mistake happens, but uh I want to say it was seven to three um, Cubs, but don't quote me on that. What it had to be six, three total. Oh, you're, Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking the score. Of the no, game. no, no, no. Just talking. I, I They were a little bit better. Um, okay. They didn't miss as many, but I want to say it was, there was 10 total missed. Yeah. Seven of them benefited. The, the Cubs. big, the bigger question is with all things like this, that is, is it just, um, guys making mistakes or is it a matter of malice or incompetence? And I, the, the, the game three really kind of had me scratching my head and, and biting my tongue a little bit, but I, 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 I mellowed out on that when I started seeing the Cubs get uh, jobbed on a few calls as well. So I, it just kind of makes me wonder to the bigger point. I mean, you've got a Twitter account out there that can clearly present this data. I mean, every broadcast you see now has pitch tracking, and there's plenty of scouting services and everything else. Um, Fox sure seemed to avoid using it when <laughs> when Indians fans were pissed off. Eh, yeah. 
and I don't I don't subscribe to that a lot, but I know like my <laughs> my wife especially, she not a huge baseball fan, but she got very into it. She was watching all the games with me and she's like multiple times she would say that looked like a strike and she'd want to see it. And unfortunately they didn't leave it up there all the time like like a lot of other stations would. Yeah. Um but I, I know that there was a couple instances where people that I was with wanted to know, you know, they wanted to see it. And the problem with that thing is that the size of that box doesn't change, but the guy batting isn't the same height. Oh no, it does. It's not identical. It, it, does it? it does. Yeah. Because oh. they did, I, I, I can't remember which game it was, but there was a sequence where they showed like five different batters in a row and the went to the, the plate obviously doesn't change, but the height of the box morphed a little bit with each batter based on their stance. No kidding. Yeah. So that, which leads me again to where I was, I I wanted to kind of go with this is at what point do we really make the push to get balls and strikes automated? Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm just every year. It's an idea that I wouldn't, that I, that I honestly had never entertained before. Um, I've been all about replay in a lot of areas. I think MLB replay has been one of the worst, honestly. Um, in terms of getting the calls right, but watching that game, especially game three, like you said, if, if you're, cons- if you're consistently that inconsistent, there's no way you can be the, one of the best at your job. Not to mention the fact the world series is supposed to have the best guys in the league, right? Yeah, you would think. And, and the other thing with that is even if an umpire is consistent, the way that one umpire is consistent one game is not necessarily the way another umpire is going to be consistent. He, the, the next guy might be completely consistent in a completely different way. He uh, could that like aspect, honestly, that I'm kind of okay with. I know it shouldn't really be that way. The strike zone should be the strike zone, but I'm okay with, with whichever way the ums want to call it. As long as they're calling it both ways, the whole game. I'm just overall, I think I'm, it, as technology continues to improve and if we're going to be able to have all this data at our fingertips and everybody else except the principals involved can actually use it. I, I just, it gets harder and harder for me to justify not using that to actually um, factor into balls and strikes calls. And while you were on the subject of replay, that was kind of the last aspect of this that I, I wanted to bring up Um I'm really glad MLB has added replay. Um, I think it was really necessary uh, just because there have been some horrendous calls in history that really swung things that that shouldn't happen. That said, the way it's actually executed needs some refinement. Uh, I, I got really tired of every single close play, every single player's immediate instinct. If the call went against them, was to wave their fingers at the dugout saying like, make them look at this, make them look at this. Um, and, and then you get the manager stepping out in the dugout and holding up his hand and saying like, well, we, we, we need to look at this. So it's like that you're basically getting instant replay twice. You're getting the team taking a look at it to determine and stopping the game to determine if they want to quote unquote challenge it. And then once they decide they want to, then the umpire has got to re- repeat the whole process. To me, there's one of two ways you go at this. Either you make the coach, or I'm sorry, the manager, make a call on the spot. You know, are you challenging it? No, we're playing. Let's go. Or you you take a system that's kind of like college football, maybe, where everything runs through 
the booth and every single close play is looked at, um, you know, and you just kind of keep it moving constantly. Like I don't feel like college football games really get bogged down. And I know you've got a little bit of time between plays, but I mean, when you got teams running spread offenses, you're still managing to get a look in. And I don't think um, if you could do it when teams are running a no huddle offense in football, I'm pretty sure with the the time between uh, at bats, you could probably effectively get something like that going in baseball as well. Yeah. I mean, my bigger problem is I feel like there's multiple instances that I've seen, especially throughout this. It was probably worse throughout the season, honestly, where I'm watching it. And for the life of me, I can't see how the hell they called it one way. Um, even in games like that, I didn't have a rooting interest in um, where to me. And I, I don't know. I can't, I can't see how, you know, maybe I'm just seeing it wrong. I don't know, but the guys on TV see it the same way, <laughs> same way I see it. And they're all suddenly like, Oh yeah, this one's coming back. They're, tr- they're overturning this one. Uh, and the guy comes out and upholds the call and they're like, well, we're wrong, <laughs> but no one seems to understand why. Um, I, I don't know. I guess it's, it's a good idea. I just think that they've, uh, they've not been good at using it so far. Yeah, there's some kinks to be worked out. Um, we'll see. I, I have a feeling that's going to get refined in one way or another. And uh, the last thing I, I will say on that, and I might have even mentioned this the last time we did a podcast, was the whole um, calling guys out when they steal a base and they're off the base for a fraction of a fraction of a second right. going from their hand to their foot. Right. That That's lame. The yeah. guy stole the base. Yep. You get in you know there. Got there. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. I agree. Um, there was a couple. I, 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 I do like being able to review like sort of the bang bang plays at first. Mm-hmm. We saw it, it hurt the Indians on one the other night with Lindor. Yep. Um, they got one back on Schwarber yesterday. The ump called it right, but review confirmed it. I do like that because I think those are the ones that in the past have always just kind of been a guessing game. They're always sort of going off of the sound mm-hmm. of the feet and the glove. Um, so the fact that they're able to get those right more consistently, uh, more consistently, I think is good. But yeah, I'm with you on the steals to second base. And they said this. Um, I want to say it might have been in the Boston series during the. Um, someone stole a base and it got overturned. I think it was Lindor, and it got overturned. And they went and looked at it, and they're just like, "Yeah, that's not at all the spirit of the replay rule." They might have gotten it technically right by the, you know, by the letter of the law, right. but that's, that's been a safe, that's been a clean steal for the last 150 years of baseball. And no one really wants that changed. Um, so I, I don't know if they'll change that. I don't know if they'll fix that, but um, I don't know if they want it fixed considering technically, yeah, they're getting the call right, but it's not really the way anyone wants those games called. No. All right. Last question I want to ask you here, and then we'll we'll probably get out of here. Uh, at the outset of the postseason, one of the things that we had talked about is what would a good postseason run do for the Indians in terms of, you know, rekindling their fan base and getting people back to the ballpark in the long term and, and just the, the way that the Indians are, are perceived in town. We got, I think, probably about as exciting of a of a 
playoff run as you could possibly have. It's the second but, best possible outcome. And, and not only that, but you could argue in some ways that it still leaves people wanting more because mm-hmm. you got people that excited and, and you gave them everything but the championship. So now there's, there's a reason to come back. What, where do the Indians go from here um, with the, with the city of Cleveland? Um, I think they spend a little bit of money. They sign another one or two guys that are noteworthy signings. Keep the core guys that they have, obviously. Um, I think they probably got a, a decent boost in season tickets just by doing, you know, the playoff tickets tied to season ticket orders. Um, so I think you'll see an increase. I don't know how much. Um, I honestly think it could be. I think it'll be improved, but I think early season next year is going to be about the same as it was this year because it's still going to be April and May, semi-meaningless, cold-weather weekday baseball in Ohio. And I don't know that that's ever really going to change. So it'll skew those um, those total attendance numbers, I think, come summer when the weather gets nicer and, you know, kids are off school and things like that attendance will you'll, you'll probably see a lot more sellouts that haven't been sellouts for the last several years but um overall i expect the turnout to be a lot better and i think truthfully i think attendance being the the measure of a fan base is sort of uh sort of a fool's errand anyways indians had great ratings on tv fans were clearly they interested in the, they were clearly interested in watching the team they just weren't always interested in paying a bunch of money to go downtown and see them. So I think you'll have, you'll maintain that fan interest, probably add a little bit more. And I think some of that will roll over in attendance. I think, and I think you made a, a lot of great points there. Um, the, the one nice thing with getting the huge bump in their season ticket base, those tickets are officially sold now. So I don't think, I, I think the days of seeing announced attendance of sub 10,000 it's going to be gone which is going to be nice I, there's some psychological barrier for me seeing a four digit attendance for a, a major mm-hmm. league baseball game so that that's going to be a thing of the past even if on some of those crappy weather nights maybe there's not a ton of people there um but by and large i i just i think this run in this whole season really recaptured people's interest in baseball and it it brought people back to the the whole idea of a pennant race and you know on field results mattering and being you know developing an emotional attachment to players you know i mean we we talked about the indians being the other guys in this series against the cubs nationally i i think they the indians were the other guys in cleveland for a long long time uh until they really caught fire here and I think people like Francisco Lindor and Jason Kipnis and Corey Kluber and Andrew Miller and, and guys like that. I mean, um, they're, they might not quite be at the, the rock star level that like Albert Bell and Kenny Lofton and Carlos Baerga were at back in the mid nineties, but um, they're a lot closer than the Indians as a franchise have been in a long, long time. I, I mean, I don't I don't know if they're going to get quite to that status, but you got a couple guys on this team like Corey Kluber looks like he's going to be one of the top three, four, five pitchers in baseball for the next few years. Yep. Francisco Linder is going to be a perennial all star for the next decade. Sure. 
Um, Kipnis, obviously, obviously he's a little older, but he he really took on a big leadership role with this team that I don't know that we'd seen him take on before. Um, Jose Ramirez obviously took a huge step forward this year. So there's a you gotta love the way that they're trending, and I I think they're not yeah they're not the level that those um, those '90s Indians teams were yet in terms of you know fanfare. And I think but they're not those guys were a lot older. <laughs> they're a lot younger. They were. Team, these think. guys are going to have a lot of time. These guys got a lot of time to get there yep. to, to, to build their their legend. And, you know, I, I think the other thing is I, I think it's OK to kind of close the book a little bit on that 90s chapter. I, I think I got you know, I, I saw a lot of conversation about this, especially when it was announced that Jim Tomey was throwing out the first pitch for game seven. And it's just like. How much nostalgia can you milk out of that mid '90s yeah, team? All four pitches were from the teams that. No offense, I loved those teams, and they were a lot of fun to watch back then. They didn't win anything either. Yeah, well, I mean, they won the pennant. They they did win the pennant twice, but, yeah, but they never won the World Series. And right, they weren't able to get over the hump. And and um, this and team now is is gotten right there as far as is those '90s teams did. And they got a lot of marketable stars and. I, I don't think you're going to have to come up with a, yet another different way to honor Jim Tomey next year in order to get the attendance above 15,000 on a, right. a Saturday afternoon. Um, right. Exactly. So I, I, you know what? I, I appreciate everything that nineties Indians did. It's a, it's a great memory, but um, let's, let's look at this team. It's a new day here, man. And, and yeah. we got a great team here and, and it's, it's going to be fun for a long time. And uh Yeah. It'll be good. They're young and they're locked up for a while. So we've got, we should have a pretty good baseball team for the next few years. Um, and I, I, I'm not the big, you know, maybe next year type of guy, but this team really does feel like, you know, they, they didn't really have all everything. You thought that they were probably a year away anyways, just because they were missing some of their guys and stuff. And, Hopefully that's the case. That's all I'm going to say. I don't I They were a lot of fun. I'm not going to knock them for anything that happened in the playoffs, really, because even yesterday, it, it would have been very easy for them to come into the to the, the dugout after those those late innings, you know, like, hey, hey, good run, guys. You know, it's just not our night. And they clawed back and gave us a moment that I don't know about you. I'll remember it for a long time. Um no, it was a great fight. Even if it didn't, yeah, even if it didn't end the way we wanted it to, it, it sucks losing a three-one lead in a in a championship series. But nobody is ever or shouldn't ever mistake them for uh, put or put by make a mistake by putting them in the same boat as what happened to Golden State. I no. mean, this was an underdog team. Even when they were up three-one, they were an underdog for the last three games of the series, and they went down fighting. And they were scratching and clawing. They were clearly, you know, worn out. They didn't have, you know, they went three starters the whole playoffs, which is sort of unconventional. Um, and they went for it. I mean, they, yeah, they, they laid it all out there, did the best they could and just came up a little short. They weren't this, you know, team of the century with unanimous MVPs and six all-stars and, favorite in every game they're ever in 
they were a team that was that was an underdog from the beginning. Even when they were down three one, like you said, they were still the underdog. They, the odds were probably on them to win the series at that point, but in each individual game, they were um, not the favorites. So yeah, they they laid it all out there and a lot to be proud about. Yeah, they came up a little bit short, but good run. There's there's. 20-something other teams that would have loved to be in the Indians position last night. No question. Great run and uh, got a little bit of work to do for next year, but going to be starting off from a tremendous place. So um, yep. a lot of reasons to be excited about baseball starting up again in the springtime. So uh, any other thoughts before we get out of here? No. Um, go Cavs. <laughs> It's uh, it's basketball season. Especially basketball season. Yeah. Back uh, back at it. Uh, I've got the game on in the background here. They uh, looks like they're in in good shape in the fourth quarter against Boston. You know, I'm Boston. taking a, I'm taking a couple days off from sports. I think <laughs> I'm not watching the Cavs. I'll I, I'll watch the Bucks on Saturday. But I'm I'm I'll, I'll take a couple days off here. Yeah, it's um, it, it's gonna be nice. I, I I'm gonna admit it. Uh, it's gonna be nice to have. Uh, kind of a break here for the next yeah. few months with just having some low stakes games for a while. It, uh, yep. it, it, it yeah, it's been, a, it's been a hell of a ride between the Cavs and the Indians the this year, though, but man. I'm a cooked. Lot of lost sleep. A lot of lost sleep. <laughs> a lot of lost sleep. A uh, few, few zeros lost in the bank account. I'm sure with um, oh, yeah. tickets oh, yeah. and merchandise and uh, bar tabs and everything probably else. Need, so probably need to get on some blood pressure medication of some <laughs> sort at some point. Um, <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings uh, owes me probably a very, very big thank you for uh, all of the business <laughs> I've done. Uh... Oh, Wings, Wings, Beer, and Sports, huh? Yep. <laughs> yeah. How do I love it? Oh, boy. All right. Well, we were uh, – I think we'll probably uh, get into the Cavs in earnest here next week and uh, finally uh, shift gears into the the next season. So um, good stuff from the Tribe. And, um, yep. We'll uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, go subscribe on iTunes. Go subscribe on uh, Google Play or uh, Stitcher if you're uh, you know rocking the Android there. And check out our website and go like our Facebook page already. At uh, we're, yeah, we're, talk to us on there. Yeah, it'd be good to hear I would from love people. To see someone say something on there. Yeah, I'll talk back. We will. <laughs> we won't scare Absolutely. you off. Hopefully, not at all. All right, so uh, I think that'll do it uh, for Travis Uli. I am Tom Valentino. It's been the nail, and uh, we will talk to you next week. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains. We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.